so that we don't lose sight of where we are going since we're kind of wandering down this path. The main thought of this study on what does righteousness look like is talking about a divide that is being created uh, between an understanding of what is the basis or what is the essence of righteousness and what is not. Okay, there's a a group of Christians that are emphasizing moral behaviors, particularly uh, sexual sins, as being the tantamount of what a righteous person does by abstaining from these immoral acts. There's a whole other group that is seeing a social justice issue of uh, importance of feeding the poor, importance of uh, defending the oppressed, of being concerned about all the evils in the world, and these two groups uh, seem to be uh, trying to win the day, and my point of this study is to say that we need to be concerned about both, not just either or, but uh, we are to be concerned about both aspects. But we want to get to the place of looking at what are root sins and what are root righteousnesses. And uh, we're going to get to that very shortly. In fact, uh, I believe I'm going to start that next week. I, at the end of this, said I'm going to do one more study here, but uh, I'm going to resist that temptation, I think, and move on. But so what does righteousness look like? A consideration of moral outrage, part one. I don't think I'm going to do a part two. Maybe I will, but I don't think so. Uh, there are some events that are perceived as so egregious that they elicit a moral outrage. In other words, there are certain sins that when they are committed, people say, well, how in the world could anyone ever do such a thing? How could we ever tolerate that kind of behavior? Okay, and usually it's on a mass scale. A lot of times it's associated with governments. Lots of times it's associated with Supreme Court decisions. How could such a thing ever happen? And it's intended to, then people intend to elicit a moral outrage. How can we put a stop to this? How can we fight this evil? How can we overcome this injustice? What must we do to put an end to this kind of behavior? So tonight I'm going to look at some lessons regarding moral outrage. At times, the people of Israel were just as bad, if not worse, than the people of Sodom. We've been looking at Ezekiel 16. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Jeremiah 23, 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery, walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns them as evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Notice there's no mention there of homosexuality but rather adultery and lies and strengthening the hands of evil doers. You have become like Sodom to me. Now that's spoken in the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesies at the very end of the kingdom era, just prior to the exile and uh, during the exile. So we're coming at the very end of the kingdom era in Jeremiah. Tonight, we are going to look at an incident that takes place before the kingdom's even established. We're looking at a, uh, an event that took place in the time of the judges. So you can see, um, not much has changed 
in Israel, uh, and when it comes to righteousness and holiness, etc., from just prior to the exile to the time of the judges. So the, the idea that the Israelites were worse than the people of Sodom would have been shocking and unacceptable to the Israelites. And it was. They were outraged when Jeremiah said that. How in the world would Jeremiah have the audacity to compare an Israelite to a Sodomite? And even say that an Israelite was worse. The reason is they did not express the same moral outrage concerning their own conduct that they expressed towards others. That's a very common aspect of moral outrage. People are outraged not by their own immorality. They are outraged by other people's immorality. Not how could we do such a thing, but how could they do such a thing. Moral outrage is expressed towards others. How could they do such a thing? We must do something to stop this. So tonight we're going to look at the event that led to moral outrage. It's the account of a Levite and his concubine. What are we to see in this story? Well, first we're to see the moral decline in Israel. The reason for the moral decline was due to the fact that the people were no longer following the law of God. Judges 19.1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Go on to the next page. Number two. No king refers not to an earthly king alone. Now, there was no earthly king in Israel, but it's more than just the fact that there was no earthly king, but also that God was no longer functioning as their king. God was to be the king of Israel. Israel was to be under a theocracy. Ruled by God. When the children of Israel wanted a king, God made it clear to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me in wanting a king over them. So God gives them an earthly king because they rejected the kingship of Jehovah God. And so the manifestation of this is seen in Judges 17, 6, and Judges 21, 5. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. There's where there's a departure from the law of God. Rather than having a moral standard of what was acceptable and unacceptable, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Okay? Living as they think they ought to live. It's not too different from the day and age in which we live. And most people just want to do what's right in their own eyes. They don't want anybody telling them what's right or wrong. They don't want the Word of God to be their authority. They want to do what they think is right, what they want to do. Moral decisions are based as an individual aspect rather than an objective aspect. So the moral decline was evident even in the priesthood. In those days, there was no king in Israel and a certain Levite. Uh, it's just to remind us what's going on here. It almost sounds like a disjunct, but the point is everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, including a certain Levite. A certain Levite was 
sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now here's the first point. And that is, was she a wife or was she a concubine? The word that's used here, the Hebrew, could be translated either way. It could refer to a wife or it could be a concubine. If you look at the translations, they all go with concubine here as opposed to wife. Reason being, by the context, concubine seems to be appropriate. Judges 19.26, And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was. The description, the relationship here was of a slave to a master. Uh, she was his wife in one sense. He's referred to her as a husband uh, in the text. But a concubine had no legal status. She was viewed to be a wife, but she had no the protections of being a legal wife. The closest thing that we've got to it is a common law marriage, but even in a common law marriage, there are certain protections, there are certain legal uh, recognition of a common law wife, but there weren't legal protections in the Old Testament for a concubine. The moral decline in the family and his concubine was unfaithful to him. Speaks for itself. Number five. The seemingly gracious bestowal of forgiveness on the part of the Levite. Then her husband, okay, because uh, that's an appropriate term for this relationship. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So it was the Levite's response of a stole of grace. Speaks kindly to her, brings her back. Or was the Levite's response moral indifference? What was the true character of the Levite? Just throwing that out there, uh, we've got to look at more in this text. We're to see that the Levite had an expectation that God's people would be more righteous than those who did not know God. That's a legitimate expectation. We should expect behaviors from God's people that are different from the behaviors of those who don't know the Lord. Okay? I think that is very, very important to understand. Because the tendency is to try to hold non-believers to the standards of believers and think that we need to cry out against all of the immoral behaviors of non-believers when what do we expect non-believers to act like? And at the same time, except within the Christian community, the immoral behaviors of non-believers when, as believers, there should be a change, there should be a transformation, there should be a difference. So we should expect more from the people of God than we expect from those who aren't the people of God. So, time elapses between verses 3 and 10, and the Levite sets out on his journey. 
But the man would not spend the night. He'd spend a number of nights. That's why I say uh, there are uh, things that occur between verses 3 and 10. But now the night has come, the day has come when he no longer would spend another night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. Number two, the Levite thought it unwise to stay in a city where the people did not worship God. He arrived at Jabus, which at that time was a foreign city, but the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. <clears throat> when Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel, the name is changed from Jabus to Jerusalem. At this time, it's not inhabited by Israelites. It's just telling us and reminding us that Jabus, at this point in history, is a foreign city that eventually becomes Jerusalem. Even though it was late, the Levite refused to lodge there because the inhabitants were not Israelites. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over. The servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside in the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but will pass on to Gibeah. The implication is that the Levite knew that it would be an unsafe place for them to stay. We're not going to stay in a, in a foreign city, a place of wickedness. We're not going to stay there and risk our well-being. We're going to push on till we get to a city in Israel, of, of Israelites. Number three, the Levite and his entourage travel till they come to a city of one of the tribes of Israel. Judges 19.13, and he said to the young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these uh, places and spend the night at Gibeah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So it was one of the cities that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, of Israel. However, when they arrived in Gibeah, there was no hospitality extended to them, as was instructed in the law of God in the Old Testament which was one manifestation of their unrighteousness. Judge 19, 15. He turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah, and he went into the city, down in the open square of that city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. A righteous old man, who is not even a part of the city, expresses hospitality to the Levite. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. It's reminding us again, here are Israelites, but one of them is from Ephraim, and one of them is from Benjamin. <clears throat> and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? He said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. So the priest is on the way to the Lord's house. The righteous old man shows great hospitality to the Levite. The Levite has ample supplies for all his needs. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant. He's referring to his wife, the concubine and a young man with your servants. In other words, we can care for ourselves. We've got plenty of food, and my concubine here can take care of everything. Okay, She can 
cook for not only her, me, and the servant, but she can make food for everybody. We're not going to put you out. Nevertheless, the old man still supplies the Levite's needs. The old man said, peace be to you, I will care for your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. Don't spend your night here, it's not safe. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now what occurs next sounds a great deal like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah years earlier. What took place in Gibeah? Judges 19.22. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the doors. Worthless fellows, the when the word worthless is used in the Old Testament, it means non-believer. Okay, so a bunch of non-believers surrounded the house, even though they are Benjamites, okay? Just because they were born Israelites didn't mean that they had a true and personal relationship with God. These did not. They surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. What took place in Sodom? Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man surrounded the house. And they called Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. All right? It doesn't point out that they are worthless fellows because they are not people of Israel. Okay? Both are unbelievers, but one is unbelievers within the nation of Israel. Another one is just unbelievers at large. There is a spirit of compromise by the old man in seeking what is perceived as the lesser of two evils, what took place in Gibeah. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers. Same thing. Well, I don't get all... Save that. No, brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Okay? This unbelievable, inexplicable, immoral thing. Don't do that. What took place in Sodom? Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers. The, the very same approach. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. The exact same words. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. The only difference is the number of daughters. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. The same offer. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. The emphasis is that it would be incredibly wicked For you to do this to this man, do what is less wicked. Take my daughter and his concubine. Don't do this outrageous thing. Do this less outrageous thing. So some observations at this point. First, Lot's actions 
were not isolated actions or thoughts. See, when we were at the study of Sodom, I hope it kind of shocked you, and I know you know the story, and it's shocking every time you read it, you don't get over it, that someone would offer their virgin daughter to a crowd of men like this. But not only does Lot do this, so does this old man who is obviously a believer, a righteous person, if you will. He does the same thing. This, I think, gives us some insight into how culture can determine our moral standards. Remember, everyone is doing right in their own eyes. Okay? And in that moral standard, the lesser of two evils was to rape a virgin daughter than to have this rape of a man. I think it says two things. I think it says something about homosexuality, but I also think it it tells us something about the role of men in the society at that time. And the position and the view of women at that time. What we have to realize is that oftentimes our culture detects, uh, determines our moral standards. Especially when it comes to outrage. Okay? Um, We buy in, if we're not careful, to our culture. That culture may be when people say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that, when there really is something wrong with that, okay, and we buy into that, or buy into the idea that, wow, that is so much more terrible than this is. Sometimes you buy into that, okay? I think the Christian church is buying into that the sin of homosexuality is worse than the sin of adultery or the sin of fornication. I think we bought into that. That's a secular mindset. Okay? And we've got to be careful. Again, don't harpoon me here, okay? Again, I'm not saying that we lower our understanding of homosexuality. I'm saying we raise our understanding of how bad adultery is and fornication. Moving on. Now the story is worse, okay, than in Sodom and Gomorrah. Things go downhill even more. Now the story is worse than Sodom, for the Levite forcibly sends his concubine out of the house to be abused and raped. But the, man would not, but the men would not listen to him. So the man, and it's referring to the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. Okay, so he forcibly... Those are out of the house. In Sodom, there is an intervention there because the angels were the ones in the house. They would not 
let those women go out. And then, of course, they had powers that the Levite did not have, and he brought blindness. But the difference is the angels wouldn't send these people out, and the Levite does. Number 10, we're to be shocked by unrighteous conduct, total indifference, and lack of compassion on the part of the Levite towards his concubine. He had not gone out to see what happened to her or to care for her during the night. He did not stay up and pray for her. Judges 19.26, And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where his master was until it was light. In the morning, the Levite only went out to go on his way, not to look for the concubine. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way. All right? It's telling us specifically why he went outside. The reason he went outside, he got in the morning, and he was going to leave. He didn't go to check on his concubine, didn't go to see what happened to her. He didn't try to find her. He was just going to leave. Behold, see, he finds the girl lying helplessly on the doorstep. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. What a picture of this girl trying to get inside to safety. Okay, What a, a visual that this is. All right, She's stumbling back, and she gets as far as the doorway of this house and passes out. Before daybreak. That's where she is. Okay? Too weak to cry out. He never opened the door. The crowd is gone. She's able to make it home. He doesn't even bother to open the door to look out and see what's going on. There is an incredible lack of compassion and concern of Levite in his words. He said to her, get up. Let us be going. Wow. Can you, can you imagine? He doesn't know she's dead yet. He, he doesn't realize at this point that she has died. She's laying in a heap. And this Levite says, "Ah, get up. It's time to go. How insensitive. How lack of compassion. All right. How, what a failure of to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay. This should be shocking to us. No statement of, can I help you? Are you all right? She was dead. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the men rose up and went away to his home. The Levite now expresses moral outrage against the men of the city. Levite seeks to inflame a moral outrage in Israel. Okay, so now he can't believe, this Levite can't believe what just happened. Can't believe. Okay, he can he can he expects that in Jebus, but can't believe that this would happen in a city of Israel. So he went 
He entered his house. He took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. So he carves her dead body up into 12 pieces and sends one to each of the tribes of Israel. Why? To shock them. To inflame them. To get them angry. To motivate them. To say, look at this evil. What are you going to do about it, Israel? It works. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel. Speak. The people are shocked by these dead remains. Now the children of Israel need to consider a response. Consider it. Take counsel. Speak. Lessons. First, moral outrage all too often is selective. It begins by having a morality that is not based totally in God's word. One application is seen in believing that the rape of the Levite would be worse than the rape of a concubine. Moral outrage all too often responds sinfully as opposed to responding righteously to the moral dilemma. Well, that's where I'm wrestling. Do I want to spend another night on this? Uh, I could demonstrate that from the ensuing passages and talk about the problems and consequences of moral outrage, but uh, I, I, I don't want to lose focus of what we're doing, so I'm going to move on, I think. But uh, I'll pray about it. B, the Levite who expresses moral outrage as to the conduct of the men in the city does not take responsibility for his own actions. Now, the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? Now, pay special attention to the account. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. What is missing there? What does he conveniently leave out? Nothing about his conduct. Nothing about his giving her over. Nothing said about forcing her outside. Silence reigns about any of that. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. There it is. They have done an abominable thing. An outrageous thing. How can we tolerate that? Well, what about his abominable Outrageous thing. What about his facilitating this? What about his indifference towards his concubine? Number one, the Levite was right to expect more of the people of Gibeah than the people of Jabus. He was right in that. We should also expect more of the Levite than the people of the city and even the old man. 
That's also right. Okay? As you look at behaviors, the book of James makes it clear that those that are in leadership are held to a higher standard. The Levite of all people should have known the law. The Levite of all people should be setting a moral high road, be setting an example. Number three, what is missing is the moral outrage over the conduct of the Levite. He doesn't get it, but he does get it. He doesn't accept it, but he conveniently leaves out what he did. If he didn't think that there was anything wrong with his sending her out, he would not have edited the events the way that he edited them. He knew that what he did was wrong. But he didn't own up to it. There's nothing in the passage that ever says he confessed it. There's nothing that that at all gives us the uh, impression that he came to grips with that. So let's go to A. He expresses no personal remorse for his actions. He does not seek forgiveness for his role in what took place. He seeks only the destruction of the perpetrators, not their well-being. He only wants to see them destroyed. He doesn't want to see them saved. He doesn't want to see them delivered. He doesn't want to see them helped. He just wants to see them destroyed. And D, he does not treat the concubine's remains with any respect or affection, but rather seeks to make her a poster child for all that has gone wrong in Israel. He just uses this as a... As a uh, a point of whipping up hysteria in the land of Israel. C. The Levite was part of the problem and not a part of the solution to the moral decay in Israel. That's all I'm trying to point out. His conduct did not help the moral decay in Israel. His conduct was only a symptom of the moral decay. It only is a factor in the moral decay. Everything in this story is bad. We shouldn't leave the people of Benjamin off the hook. We shouldn't leave the old man off the hook. We shouldn't leave the... It's all bad. It's all bad. But that's the point. It's all bad. So I'm going to move on from here. I've just made my decision. I am going to move on here because it's all bad. But that doesn't mean that we don't become concerned about about behaviors that are unacceptable. Simply means is we don't become selective. We become concerned about root issues. Not just leaf issues, not just certain external things that happen that are a result of deep down problems inside. What we need to address are the issues that are deep down inside. And if we change that, we'll change society. All these other things are symptoms, they're not the disease. 
The disease is the heart. All these others are just an expression of what's going on in the heart. That's why Jesus says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, evil actions. Okay? So next week, I'm going to start focusing on the root sins in the heart that we have to look at as opposed to these symptoms that people want to talk about all the time. Number one, the conduct of the men in the city was inexcusable. So too was the conduct of the Levite. We must be careful as to what fans the flames of moral outrage. We must be very careful concerning our response to the moral outrage that is around about us, that we too do not become a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. Okay? Should we be concerned about sin? Should we be concerned about our culture, our society? Should we acknowledge that Boy, there's a lot of evil out there, of course, of course, of course, of course. But the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? How do we respond to it? I'm actually going to start on that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Uh, Lord, uh, give us wisdom as we seek to be a light As we seek to be salt in the earth, Lord, teach us how we can be that. Help us us to guard against a selective moral outrage. Help us to realize that it doesn't actually effectively change a culture, a society, a people, or even ourselves. Uh, Lord, uh, help us, help us to respond in a a way that is really going to bring about a true and lasting righteousness in our lives and in our culture. Uh, Give us wisdom and give us strength. Give us of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.